Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we are so grateful for the support we get from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for The Irish Story and The Irish History Show, and we would really appreciate it if you would consider supporting the show, and there was a link to that in the show notes. So on today's episodes, we're going to be looking at the Desmond Rebellions and going all the way back to 16th century Ireland. Now, this isn't something we've covered a lot on the show up to this point, is it, John? No, and to be honest, with the decade of commemorations, we've been focused very narrowly on a small band of 20th century Irish history. So we're going to branch out a little bit. But this is actually going back to my roots, my history roots, because this is what I originally studied was the late 16th century and 17th century in Ireland. Well, this thing is... When you're looking at this period in Irish history, you tend to look backwards and try and graph on things that happened in 19th and 20th century Irish history and find parallels and similarities. But you really have to start way back and give a lot of context for this. And you you have to go back really to the Norman invasions in Ireland. Yeah, and I mean, just as a kind of preamble before we start, 19th century Irish nationalists themselves grafted on their understandings of Irish history onto this period. So when they're writing it, especially in the late 19th century, you know, they made people like the Earl of Desmond, James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, who we'll be talking about, and so on, into kind of nationalist heroes, which they really weren't, you know, they really can't be fitted into that, I don't think. But understandably, you know, people craft the past into something that's useful for the present. So everybody does this. But to kind of grasp it, I think you have to disconnect it a little bit from what happened in the centuries afterwards. Well, this is the thing, and especially when you're going into the 17th century, is trying to find proto-Republicans among uh, the different groups, and there really isn't any. Well, I mean, that's the topic for another podcast. That's a complicated era, and there are actually one or two people who say they want an Irish Republic in the 17th century, believe it or not. But for our purposes, for the period that we're talking about, no, it's a very, very different world. And like you said, it's better to be understood looking forwards from the 12th century than looking backwards from the 21st century. Well, if we look at the 12th century... We have that very important uh, year in Irish history, 1169. Can we talk about the Norman invasion in Ireland? Yeah, so first of all, there's a number of things. We call it the Norman invasion now. At the time, nobody called them the Normans. They called them the English. But England itself was run by French-speaking people who were descended from the Norman conquerors of a century earlier. And what happened was they, first of all, came to Ireland as mercenaries. So Richard de Clare, Strongbow, came 
to A, determined to where the King of Leinster. He was followed over, of course, by the King of England. And the King of England declared himself the Lord of Ireland way back in the late 1100s. Now, initially, like he's actually signed a treaty with the High King of Ireland. So there was a High King of Ireland, even though he didn't really control all of Ireland. But he signed a treaty with the King, High King of Ireland, Rory O'Connor, stating that he was the Lord of Ireland. But then the Irish version, actually, and they would be clear about this when they were writing about it in the medieval and the early modern periods, is the English broke the treaty by seizing way more land than had been agreed. And so what happened was basically what we call Anglo-Norman lords went out on their own and they seized much of the most fertile land in early medieval Ireland, especially in South Munster, the, the area we're talking about today. Royal administration based in Dublin. Now, the thing is, though, and this is important for our purposes, is whereas in the early medieval period, the English thought that they had conquered most of Ireland and the King of England claimed himself to be the Lord of Ireland, not yet the King, because he didn't control all the territory and so on. But that control contracted drastically during the Middle Ages. So what you're left with by the end of the 15th century is a situation where English royal control has contracted to an area around Dublin, the Pale, the famous Pale. The actual Pale, which is the fortified ditch, comes quite late in the day. It comes sometime in the 15th century. But outside of that, you have two types of English presence. And you don't have really the central government's presence, but you do have, first of all, towns, which are mostly English-speaking. So this goes way back. I mean, Wexford and South Wexford is particularly English settled area and they speak a dialect of English called Yola, Cork, Limerick, places like that, Drogheda. These are English speaking islands, if you like, surrounded by Irish speaking countryside. So 90% plus of the population speaks Irish, more than 90%. But you also have the descendants of these people who were a bit like conquistadors, you know, in the New World, mm -hmm. whose ancestors seized loads of land and they had titles such as the Earl of Kildare, the Earl of Ormond, the Earl of Desmond. These people are referred to by various names in the historiography, in the history writing. So one name is the English of Ireland, the Old English, the Irish call them the Gaul, which is a term that precedes the Norman invasion that was used for the Vikings, but it basically means kind of foreigners. But they distinguish them from the Sassanic, who are the, the English. And by the 16th century, certainly, while these people had their land titles by English law, so they're the Earl of Desmond, which is an English title, the Earl of Ormond, and so on, they are culturally Irish. They speak Irish. They use the Brehan Law, you know, which is a kind of a scheme of negotiations. They negotiate with the Irish lords mostly as kind of equals. You know, they've different. They're clear that they have different kind of titles. For example, like the McCarthy Moore, who is the big Gaelic lord in South Munster, is elected by his kinsmen. You know, which is something that causes a great deal of trouble every time one of them dies. But whereas the Earl of Desmond, his neighbour, it goes to the eldest son. Why? Because they have different titles, different types of title. Well, let's just talk about that for a moment, that this idea of primogenitor, that the eldest son inherits all the land and the titles of his father, and that's the way you move on wealth and power in large parts of Europe, in Britain, and this is something that the Anglo-Normans bring with them. But in Gaelic Ireland, before the Normans arrived, where we spoke earlier about there's a, there's a high king in Ireland, there's regional kings, and then there's minor kings or chieftains all around the country. How does power work in Gaelic Ireland and continue to work after the Norman invasion in native Irish areas? Yeah, so first of all, I mean, the broad picture is that 
the Irish kings, well, the last king of Ireland is way back in the 1170s, is Rory O'Connor, Rory O'Connor. So that gets dismantled and so on. And also the regional kingdoms kind of fall into abeyance. But what you do have is the, the lordships remain, the Irish lordships, and they kind of resurge as the English presence contracts. So you have various things like the Great Plague, the Black Death, the 14th century it is one of the key things there. But they work as basically little kingdoms. So you asked about succession. The way they work is they're kin groupings. And I studied this for my master's way back, so forgive me for getting into the weeds here. But they have a thing which anthropologists call agnatic kinship, which means that everybody in a spread way out from an original ancestor is considered a relative. So you have very large kind of clans. Clown being an Irish word, but actually it's not the word that was used at the time. They used the word set. Clan, I think, was brought into English in, the, in looking at Scot Gaelic Scotland, I think. But anyway, a chieftain is a member of a very white king group. But the thing is that when he dies, it doesn't go to his eldest son automatically. The idea is that there's a meeting of the derv inna, the true kin, and that they're supposed to select a new leader. Now, this all sounds nice and democratic, and people like James Connolly, for example, looking back, said, this shows that the Irish were Democrats, you know, not like these aristocratic English. In fact, though, it was a real weakness when you're talking about the cutthroat world that existed in the medieval and the early modern period, because you have so many potential successors that almost inevitably they fought among themselves. And every time there was a lord died, there was usually some sort of succession crisis. Now there's exceptions because sometimes the lord manages to get the person he wants nominated as Tanishta. This is where the word comes from that we use now for deputy prime minister. Mm -hmm. The English transliterated this as Tanist, but the idea was the chieftain would nominate a Tanist or a Tanishta before he died. And usually, not always, that person would precede him. But if he didn't have a strong enough hold on the lordship, then there would be incessant squabbling between the Dervina, the this wide pool of potential, potential successors. And it's one of the reasons why the English lordships were more powerful, really, is because they had a more simple and easier way of succession and a bit more unified. Now, they squabbled among themselves as well, don't get me wrong, but not to the same extent. When we think back to this period, and we try and think about the modern times, what we consider a state that there's a central power, there's laws. How does power function in medieval Ireland? In medieval Ireland, you have a very constricted royal presence. And by the end of the period, it's extremely constricted because you have to remember England itself is in civil war for a lot of the 15th century, the, what we call the Wars of the Roses. And, and various Irish magnates took sides in this. And by the way, Cork listeners might be interested to learn that Cork's nickname as the Rebel City comes from taking one of the wrong side in one of those Wars of the Roses and not from... The struggle for Irish independence, but I digress. What royal authority means is just the enclave around Dublin, essentially. Now, the Lord Lieutenant, or the Lord Deputy, it's more commonly referred to, which is the King's representative in Ireland, typically, in this period we're talking about, the beginning of the 16th century, is farmed out to one of the great old English, if you like, noble houses. So the Earls of Kildare held it for most of the, the end of the 15th century. And what it means is not a great deal. It means that, like, Basically, a lot of the Irish lordships don't have any formal relationship with the, with the King of England. So that comes in the, the reign of Henry VIII. The role of the Lord Deputy is to keep people in line, make sure they don't rebel, they don't take the wrong side, they don't side with the wrong faction in England. It's very rudimentary. Nobody's paying taxes, for example, in any form in Ireland, except the people in the Pale. And they're only paying a limited amount that sustains you know, the, the Lord Deputy and his retinue in Dublin Castle. Dublin Castle's already there. But state power is very, very limited. So what you have is effectively you can say dozens of micro kingdoms really in most of the country and that old phrase that people used to say that the 
Anglo-Normans became more Irish than the Irish themselves. Now, that's problematic. But if you're thinking about, say, the Earls of Desmond or somebody who's down in the southwest of Ireland or far, far away from the centre of power in Dublin, how much are they absorbing Irish traditions and Irish ways? Oh, like, I would say they were 99% Irish. That's not to say that they don't consider themselves English in some way, because they kind of do, and they're very conscious that their title comes from English law and so on. But they're Irish-speaking, they dress in the Irish way, they retain mercenaries who they, you know, they can be Irish, but they can also be Scottish, you know, Gales, the Galogli, Galaglass. They patronise Irish poets, which is very important, at cultural means. I mean, one thing actually that's interesting is so the upper classes of Ireland and the educated class, which is the priests and the brahans and the poets and so on, spoke a different form of Irish from the average person who would speak some sort of provincial dialect. But there was a kind of classical Irish in the same way that there's classical Arabic. Like everyone in the Arab world speaks a different dialect, but there is a classical Arabic over them all. And Gaelic Ireland and Scotland also had that. You know, so it's, it's interesting. It's something that's, you know, quite alien to us now. But the so-called Old English of, of this time, if we're talking about the provincial ones, and I mean, you mentioned the, the Earls of Desmond. Another example is the Burks of Clan Rickard, Clan Richard that originally comes from, you know, the, the Clan of Richard. They are like that. The Burka is the original family name, which is an Anglo-Norman name, but they were considered totally Irish, whereas the Earls of Desmond are considered kind of half and half. The Butlers of Ormond are a bit more English. You know, they retained a little bit more English. They, some of them knew how to speak English, for example. But like it, it's quite common for an old English so-called magnate of that period really not to know English very well, for example. Most of them did learn it, but I mean, their worst language would be in Irish. So culturally, they're quite Irish, but they do still, they're still very conscious that they are the English of Ireland, that they're holding their titles by English law and so on. And the Irish recognise them as kind of native, but they are slightly different. You know, they do, they come from a slightly different cultural tradition and they can be summoned to court and they can go to court as the Earl of Desmond as someone with kind of rights, you know, they could sit in the House of Lords whenever it was called, just very infrequently. Whereas the Irish, before the reign of Henry VIII, are His Majesty's Irish enemies. You know, they're outlaws, they're outside the, the legal framework of the, the Lordship of Ireland. So it's, their status is different. Now, we've been mentioning uh, Henry VIII there a few times. Can we talk about what becomes known as the Tudor Conquest and why this comes about? Yeah, so we call it the Tudor Conquest because we know how it ended, right? At the time, they didn't know it was going to be a conquest. You know, the conquest was how things worked out. Well, basically what happens is, first of all, Henry VIII is obviously a very controversial figure in English history. And one of the things to bear in mind is how radical a break Henry VIII's career is, you know. People now know about he killed all his wives and everything, but Henry VIII's break with Rome was a massive thing because he also disestablished the church and he seized the monasteries, which is a massive appropriation of wealth to the crown. So it's also, as well as being like a break with Rome, it's also a big agglomeration of power money in the crown itself in central government and in Ireland he dissolved the monasteries and he, he kind of got away with it by paying off the, the pales and so on but there is a rebellion by the Earl of Kildare the Fitzgeralds have two branches the Earls of Kildare and the Earls of Desmond and the Earl of Kildare has been put in prison and his son so Thomas Fitzgerald, Silken Thomas in the, in the historical legend goes into rebellion and their seat in Maynooth is eventually taken and destroyed by the English. The reason for that rebellion was actually because the, they were stripped of the, the title of Lord Deputy. So they wanted to be the governors of Ireland and didn't get it. But they couched their rebellion in religious terms. Because, you know, the Henry VIII broke with the Pope. He's a heretic now. 
Now, the reason why this is really dangerous is because the Tudors have only just about kind of come out of these factional wars in England. You know, their position is not all that secure against the House of York. They have enemies in Scotland. So Scotland, remember, is still a hostile kingdom to England at the time. You have enemies in France. So the idea that your allies, if you like, in Ireland, or the people who keep Ireland quiet for you are going into rebellion is pretty dangerous. You know, maybe the Scots or maybe the French will get involved there. It's a backdoor to England. You can't let it happen. So Henry needs a strategy where he can keep Ireland quiet. He says, what's been the problem in Ireland? The problem is we never really controlled the whole place in the first place. There's a lordship. We control bits of it. What we need to do is control the whole thing. And he proclaimed himself to be the king of Ireland in 1542, if memory serves me. And the idea is that the Irish, previously his majesty's Irish enemies, will be brought into the fold. They'll be given English titles. So, for example, the McCarthy Moor in what's now Cork and Kerry will become the Earl of Carty is the, the title they came up with, which is an odd title, but there's lots of this goes on. You know, the O'Neill up in Ulster, in, centred in Tyrone, it's going to be the Earl of Tyrone, and so on. This kind of thing. Now, the thing is, it doesn't really work out. One of the reasons it doesn't work out is because Irish lordships, as we discussed, are not stable. So the English idea is, for example, you give the title of the Earl of Tyrone to one guy, his son gets the title. No problem. But the problem is, when he dies, there are, in fact, lots of different successors. And some of them are stronger than the guy you want to back. And if you want to impose your line of succession, you have to get involved. And this is exactly what happened. So they get in a war with, in the north with Shane O'Neill, who is not the rightful successor by the English reckoning, but is the strongest one. So he takes over the Earl of Tyrone. The English end up fighting him for a lot of years. The same thing happens in a lot of places. The English get drawn into these wars. Now, the other thing, though, is that... The English think that not only will you bring the Irish in nominally into this you know, surrender and grant, but you also change them for the better. You'll teach them the English language. You'll teach them the common law. You'll get them to abandon what they call their barbarous ways. And you will get them to be Protestants eventually. Although the interestingly, and this is again surprising in hindsight, is that the English are not that interested in the religious thing at the start. They said that will come eventually. But what's more important at the start is the civil reformation, they said, which is interesting. You know, teaching them English, teaching them the common law getting them to dress in the English way. They're very keen on this. They get to, to abandon the mantle, which is kind of a cloak, which is what the Irish wore at the time, and getting them to wear trues, you know, trousers. We can see this stretches back centuries in Ireland, this idea that of separation between the native Irish and the old English or the Anglo-Normans. And a lot of it is to do with the Brehan law system, as you say, their dress, Haircuts, haircuts, intermarriage, language, language, poetry, all these different things that sort of define Gaelic art. Oh yeah, this, these are not new ideas. I mean, and just to give people an idea, like in the city of Dublin, people might be aware of the inner suburb of Irishtown. Well, the reason Irishtown got its name, and there's also an Irishtown in Limerick and Kilkenny and various other cities, mm-hmm. is because the Irish were not allowed to live inside the walls un- under, you know, a, a 15th century, I think, ordinance. The idea is the, you know, the Irish are making the English degenerate, you know. They're, they're going to make them into gales <laughs> and so they have to be kept apart so these are not new ideas they're updating of old ideas but the idea of the henry's new kingdom of ireland is that you'll peacefully bring them in the irish will see the, the superiority the the superior civility of english civilization and they'll peacefully adopt it and that just ain't going to happen mm. you know henry doesn't realize this and it takes a long time monarchy in england is quite unstable of course so there's brief frustration of catholicism under mary and so on before finally Elizabeth takes over. And that's when the Tudor conquest really starts to really starts to gather momentum because it, 
Elizabeth is aware she has powerful enemies right, in Spain particularly. So Spain is the superpower of the era and it's a Catholic power. It's a consciously Catholic power. You have to wrap this up in Ireland. You can't have this instability. You can't have all these little wars. And so it really starts to take off from the 1560s and it really gets quite violent. And the dynamic at play here is you have to secure state control over all of Ireland. So we talked about what it meant in medieval Ireland, basically not very much. There wasn't a lot of state presence. So now what they're doing is they want to, first of all, they create counties. And, you know, we think of counties as something very Irish, but it's, it's 100% a creation of the, the Kingdom of Ireland. They create counties. The county has a sheriff. They're supposed to um, impose common law, although, in fact, uh, martial law is, is in place for a lot of the 16th century, which means, you know, you've, almost no rights against the, whatever military is there. Mm-hmm. They try to impose a thing called provincial president. So you have, a, a, obviously, the four provinces of Ireland, they get a president, which is like a governor. It's not elected by any means. Mm-hmm. And they also expect the existing lords, both Old English, if you like, and Gaelic, to respect the law. Now, the thing is, of course, they had never done this. And as well as we talked about internecine fighting within lordships over people wanting to be top dog but also the lordships be they Gaelic be they Old English or whatever are constantly fighting with each other over essentially what it is is who gets to tax the people so the people in power are the people who hold weapons and they can hire mercenaries and stuff as well they also have the rising out so Irish and Irish which is where the, that phrase comes from um, we mobilise the, the free people of the society to carry weapons so there's also a class of unfree in Gaelic society but anyway uh, but the majority of people are obviously producing their, you know, farming and so on. They're uh, minding cows. The most typical thing is what they call bullying, where you drive the cows up into the hills in the summer and you drive them down into, mm. into the valleys in the winter. And that's the kind of way people live. And um, there's going to be small towns. You tax them, you tax the merchants and so on. So you can increase your power by basically increasing your number of tenants. And this is what they're constantly doing. They're chivying with each other. And this is what sets off what we're going to, the topic of our talk today, the Desmond Rebellions, what sets it off is actually two old English earldoms, the Butlers of Ormond, with their seat in Kilkenny, and the Fitzgeralds of Desmond, whose seat is in Newcastle West, modern County Limerick, fighting with each other over a tenant, and he's also like a minor lord himself, Fitzgerald, who's on the border between the two, over who he's going to pay tax to, effectively, mm. the Fitzgeralds of Desmond or the Butlers of Ormond. And... The Fitzgeralds of Desmond and the Butlers of Ormond meet in a pitched battle at a place called the Thane in 1567 and they unfurl their banners for battle. And this is a big deal because this is a, a, the only person who has the right to unfurl their banners in battle is the Crown or, or people who the Crown has delegated. And what happens is there's battle and the Butlers win and they get to keep this guy Fitzgerald, keep paying them tribute. But Elizabeth is furious over this. You know, these are two magnate families. They fight a battle without permission, basically. And she comes in and she to decide the rights and the wrongs of it. And she decides the butlers are the aggrieved party. Black Tom Butler, the Earl of Ormond, Tom Dove. That's where, again, you know, you, these, these people are really not what they sound yeah, like, you know. Yeah. Black Tom Butler gets off scot-free, but the Earl of Desmond is put into prison. The Fitzgeralds of Desmond, they take this very badly and they come out in rebellion. Now, okay, what do you have here? You have a dispute between these earldoms and the crown. So what, right? But the thing is, this is happening at the same time as the English are beginning to try to impose their law and their culture and their religion over the whole country. And so, interestingly, what you get is the remaining senior Fitzgerald, who's a guy called James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, 
who was the head of their military, such as it was, he comes out and he says, these English are just ruining our country and they're heretics. And he says, anyone who believes this should join with me. So he's he's not just saying we're wronged and it's, it's all against the butlers. He's also saying, no, we need to throw out the English and the heretics. Now, at the time, quite a lot of the Irish clans and stuff, I'm using that word, but the Irish lordships or clans join him. And why did they join them? Well, partly it's just factional, you know, partly they, they also want to chivy away at the butlers and stuff. And some of them are old English at the Barrys in Cork, for example. Also, it's because they really don't like these English officials coming in and imposing martial law and sizing up places for maybe settlement and stuff like that. Well, that's something we should mention as well, because when we think about plantation in Ireland, I think a lot of people believe that the first plantation in Ireland was the Ulster Plantation after the Nine Years' War in the early 17th century. Mm-hmm. But the 16th century is a century full of plantations. Yep. So the first plantations were actually in Leishanoffoli, which renamed Kings County and Queens County. And with the that's the Amor clan is, is displaced from there and they bring in settlers. And, and under the Catholic Queen as well. Under the Catholic Queen, exactly. So yeah. actually, like religion, as I said, is, is not the decisive factor yet. Everything is always very complicated. But basically, More complicated, didn't you think? But basically, they tried to displace the Amor clan and they tried to put in these settlers in Leash and Offaly. It doesn't work all that well because the Amors just you know keep harassing them and so on. They have to eventually massacre all the Amors after inviting them in for peace talks, etc. But plantation is a tactic from the 1540s onwards. So you, the idea is you will bring in cohort of settlers from England and Wales who will be a kind of a garrison a lot of them are former soldiers but who will also be an example to the Irish showing them how civilised people do it you know? <laughs> it's just interesting but at the period at the start of the Desmond Rebellion you don't have a big plantation in Munster yet but you do have individual settlement and what enterprising people in England are starting to do is look up all the medieval charters for people whose family might have had land back when the English presence was much bigger mm. in early medieval Ireland and saying, ah, this actually accrues to me. And the English looking through the laws and saying, yes, it does. You know, and it's obviously this upset the, the people who are actually in possession of these lands. So that's a lot of it. A lot of what happens is you've got the beef between the Fitzgeralds and the Desmonds, yes. You've got the Fitzgeralds feeling they came off worse as regards to the crown, but you also have resentment against the idea that these English settlers are starting to seep into Munster. Yeah, in very fertile and uh, rich lands. Well, you know, Munster is actually a big contrast. So you've got like, South Kerry and West Cork and so on to use modern geography which is not fertile at all you know it's all mountainous but you do have the Desmond lands are extremely fertile those the, the Golden Vale the best dairying land of Ireland stretches from Limerick over to kind of Carlow which is the, the lands we're talking about sweet between the, the Desmond and the Ormonds mm-hmm. but yeah the Desmonds come out in rebellion they're joined by quite a few Gaelic clans but what makes this different is the viciousness of the fighting so there's a guy called Humphrey Gilbert who was an Elizabethan commander. Now, one thing to bear in mind, actually, is that the numbers of combatants we're talking about are very small. So the population of Ireland is probably one or two million. We don't really know. But the population of England is not that much either. You know, it's, it's no more than five or six million. They also, you know, this is way prior to anything like the Industrial Revolution, they, or even, you know, the following centuries of economic development at that time. They can't maintain massive armies in the field. They don't have the money or the food to, to feed them. So you have... At the peak of the Desmond rebellions, maybe 6,000 English soldiers in Ireland, which if you compare to say something like, you know, the War of Independence, where which we're familiar with, where the British had 50,000 troops in Ireland and they still couldn't maintain order to their lights in the place. The English of the 16th century are very limited forces. They're chasing around bands of rebels. They're trying to besiege their castles and so on. 
But mainly what they're trying to do is to terrorize people because they can't catch these bands of rebels. So this guy, Humphrey Gilbert, has a practice of rolling into an area, or, well, riding in, I suppose, not rolling, not doing much rolling in the 16th century, cutting off the heads of anyone. And both the English and the Irish sources say he killed the people of any sort whatsoever, which means he killed old people, young people, rich people, poor people, uh, male, female. And he would cut off their heads and line the route into his camp with their heads. And uh, the English sources say something like, it did inspire much terror among the Irish to see their kinsfolk's heads displayed as they came in to submit. So this is the kind of thing that goes on. Well, that's sort of what I really found reading about the Desmond rebellions and reading about this period in Irish history. The utter brutality by the Crown in Ireland. Yeah, and this is new. You know, so, like, warfare was kind of endemic in Gaelic Ireland, but not this level of it. Like, the Irish were genuinely shocked by this kind of wholesale slaughter that people like Humphrey Gilbert brought in. And... Like, we're talking about Munster and the Desmond Rebellions, but this also goes on in Connacht, it also goes on in Ulster. You know, there have been various episodes up to now. And there's definitely a new level of viciousness. And you have to say it is... I don't like using the word racism, because this is a modern term, but it is this feeling like, you know, these people are not fully human, so it's it's fine to do whatever you want with them. Mm-hmm. They're savages, you know? Yeah. But that idea that soldiers just wantonly killing children, for example... Yeah, and and also like you know the woodcuts that we have. So obviously, we've nothing like photographs of that, but the woodcuts show the English soldiers marching about with heads. And they're holding, you know, severed heads by the hair and stuff. You know, things that we associate with ISIS and things like that, really beyond the pale. This is the way they operated. Now, don't get me wrong, this happened in Gaelic Ireland as well, but not on this wholesale kind of level. Well, that's the thing. When you're reading about a lot of the violence in Gaelic Ireland, I'm. As we said, there like violence between old English Anglo-Norman families. There seemed to be a bit, an idea that the violence was a prelude to some type of deal. It wasn't like full-scale slaughter and scorched earth. Well, this is it. So, I mean, and, and because I suppose the belligerents have very different ideas of what's going to happen. So in Ireland, it's almost like... I hesitate to use this phrase, but I think it works. It's, it's almost like a mafia feud, you know. Yes, there'll be violence, but you're going to do some other deal and patch things up, and who pays off who in the end is what matters. Now, when the Elizabethan state gets involved, it's different. They're like, we need 100% control of this place, and we'll do whatever it takes, you know, to do it. And, and remember, like, the stakes are high, you know, as far as the English are concerned, uh, the Elizabethan state is concerned. Their position is precarious. They're, they're not a superpower in Europe. They're a relatively weak country. They have to secure their their western frontier, if you like. The English, however, despite the brutality and so on, they find it difficult to put down the rebellion. John of Desmond, who's the second, the second in line in the, the dynasty, he comes out in rebellion as well. So they sack several towns and so on, but it drags on in kind of guerrilla warfare. And finally, there's a settlement where the Earl of Desmond is released from prison, and he comes back and he says it was all a mistake, it was all a misunderstanding. James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, the soldier who started the whole thing, fled to Spain. And everything is, is more or less calmed down. However, in the wake of this, the English think, what caused this problem? Well, one of the problems was all these soldiers. So in, in Gaelic Ireland, you have a lot of mercenaries, basically. Loose swordsmen, the English would refer to them as. And Drury, who is the Lord President of Munster, says, well, we better do something about it. So he starts executing them. He does, you know, the martial law is declared, he can just hang them. And that's what he does. He can hang 700 by his account in the aftermath of the rebellion. And the seepage, if you like, of settlement, it keeps on going as well. That antagonizes people. 
And so, meanwhile, there's something else that's interesting that's happening here. Again, this is weird to our conception of Irish history, but in the Pale, in Dublin, the only English-speaking, and Dublin and the surrounding area, the only English-speaking part of Ireland, although Irish is also spoken there, you start to get a a real rejection of the Reformation in and around this time. Now, partly it's because it's getting more explicitly Protestant in the reign of Elizabeth. Partly it's because both Old English and Gaelic Irish are starting to send their sons off to the continent to be trained, or to go to university and to be trained as, as priests. They're coming back with the kind of counter-Reformation philosophy. But you start to see a rejection of the state's religion, and it starts in the English-speaking areas, not in the Irish-speaking areas which is curious to our lights, you know. And I'm not talking about the Gaelicized Old English. I'm talking about the English Old English, the ones who really were all, who really deserve the name, you know, the Pales people and the people of Wexford and so on. James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald goes off and he actually gets help from the Pope. And various Irish lords also write to the King of Spain and they say, we want you now to help us get rid of the heretics. And those are actually Gaelic lords who did that. But James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, he gets help from the Pope. The King of Spain is involved in some sort of underhanded way, Philip II. It appears that Philip didn't want to openly go to war with England, but he was prepared to do it through a proxy and say it was nothing to do with him, which reminded, mm. you know, stop me when this reminds you of yeah. current practices. Yeah. But James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald comes back to Ireland, Lansing Carey, but he has an old English priest with him, you know, and he has a paper letter saying he is declaring a holy war. He's going to rid Ireland of the heretics. And so the Second Rebellion kicks off with this invasion in 1579. Well, just to put a type of time frame on it as well, the First Esmond Rebellion, that's about four years long, isn't it? It drags on for about three years, yeah. Three, most, three of the, years. most of the fighting is in the first kind of year, though, yeah. Yeah, and we have a bit of a period, a bit of a lull then. Yeah, about six years of, of, of peace, sort of. Yeah. So in this six years, this is when we start to see the major rejection of the new religion by the old English. You're starting to see it there, yeah, in a big way. And... You know, it's it's partially clearly based with the expanding Elizabethan state, but some of it is just religious. You know, they just think that this new religion is not legitimate, you know, the legitimate religion is in Rome. And people haven't 100% really worked out the sociology of this. But I mean, I think we should take 16th century people at their word. You know, they believed in, in these things, you know, as they were, not as symbols for something else. And that's what seems so strange in retrospect, that particularly around Dublin, this colonial population, but really sees themselves as old English, traces all their roots back to the Norman invasion, are very loyal to the crown, that the Reformation doesn't take off at all. No, and it's it's an interesting thing. And I mean, scholars uh, have debated this and you know the sources are not great. Like, So we don't have sources for the great mass of people. But one of the interesting things is that at the time when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, that included in the Pale, there wasn't a peep out of the Pale's people at that period in the 1530s and 40s. And, you know, part of the reason is because the money from the monasteries was, was distributed generously. But by the 1570s, 1580s, you're seeing citizens of Dublin, including the Bishop of Dublin, who was actually a Gaelic Irishman, getting hanged because they refused to conform to the state religion. What has happened there is not entirely clear to us. You know, it's probably clear to people at the time, but it's not entirely clear to us. But one thing I will say is, at this period in time, again, the English are still under the impression that the religious reformation can come second in Ireland. The civil reformation has to come first. So if people want to be Catholics, well, we'll deal with that later. People are actually, you know, Catholics are generally hanged because they're 
according to the English version anyway, or the English Protestant version, because they're rebels rather than because of their religion at this stage. So, but one suggestion is that the Counter-Reformation takes off in Ireland because there isn't systematic repression yet of religion. But, you know, I, I really don't know, and scholars still debate this. Well, when we think about Elizabeth de Forest and the consequences of her being declared a heretic by the Pope, what obligations does that land on the other royal families in Europe and Catholics within Ireland? Yeah, so it's a massive thing. Now, the thing is, the theory of monarchy, of course, in, in early modern Europe is that they are there by divine right. They're keeping the, the divinely inspired order. You know, they're, they're there with God's permission, if you like. If you're a heretic, though, so, I mean, a, a subject has a duty of obedience to a sovereign is the dominant theory. And this is, I mean, the old English of Ireland are very attached to this theory, the Gaelic Irish much less. If you're released from this obligation, the duty of obedience, because the sovereign is a heretic, that's a big deal. You know, then you're no longer rebelling against, you know, the divinely appointed monarch. You're rebelling against a heretic and a tyrant. So the Pope's letter that comes with Miss Martha Fitzgerald says Elizabeth is a heretic and a tyrant. So they, they, this is a big deal in the political thinking in early modern Europe. It's not a legitimate ruler, it's a tyrant. So this is a term they take from ancient Greece, but it means an illegitimate ruler. Mm-hmm. You know, we use various terms for this ourselves according to our values, mm-hmm. but this is the way they see it. So one theory is that the very conservative kind of old English population in Ireland see that the Tudor monarchs are not, you know, conservative keepers of order, that they're, they're tyrants and innovators and heretics, you know. Maybe that's the reason why. But, you know, there's, there's lots we don't know, to be honest about that. So... With this, uh, we call it invasion, this landing. Landing, might be a better uh, word, yeah. Uh, in Kerry, what happens next? Well, interestingly, like, Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald comes in and he has a papal envoy with him, he has a letter and so on, declares holy war. He's actually killed quite quickly. But what happens is the Fitzgerald dynasty as a whole quite quickly goes into revolt. So there's other factors at work that Fitzgerald basically still feel that they've been wronged by the crown in their dispute with the butchers. They, they feel they were harshly treated in the First Desmond Rebellion. And John is the second. He's the real strong man of the family. And the Earl go into rebellion. They are joined again by quite a lot of Gaelic families. Now, not, they're not always the same Gaelic families, which is interesting. Mm. Like, there's different branches of the McCarthy family. And the McCarthy-Moore family puts its lot in with the Fitzgeralds in the Second Desmond Rebellion. But another branch, the McCarthy-Rayach family in West Cork, they don't, you know. The Barry family, which is a family of... of Anglo-Norman origin, but it's, you know, it's a Gaelic family, really. They throw their lot in with the rebellion. Burks of Clan Rickard don't. You know, they're the ones who kill James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, actually, etc. It's very complicated based on, it, you know, when you drill into it, it's, it's all based on local allegiances. And it can also be based on, like, who wants to be the successor inside a lordship. Like, there can be rival ones on different sides. And people switching sides. And people constantly switch sides. Switching so, sides. I mean, one modern parallel, which I think is good, is Afghanistan. You know, the Americans and... British and so on in Afghanistan and, and I'm talking about in the recent war could never figure out who was on which side because clan leaders if you like were constantly switching allegiance mm-hmm. uh, but I think this is just the nature of a society like that you know what is the plan here the grand plan behind the, the rebellions like what do they hope to achieve they seem to have hoped to provoke a nationwide rebellion and the thing about this is is once you bring in the elements of both religion and they would say like the English are ruining our country so there was it's, it's not nationalism as we would understand it, but there is an idea that this is our country and the English are coming in and ruining the place and that they have no respect for the Irish and they kill them and they kill them outside of the law, like the people who come in for pardon and then they're killed. The idea is that you know, 
you get all these people together who are dissatisfied with the English, uh, the advancing Tudor presence in Ireland, and they'll join the rebellion. And they have some success with this. Like there's a rebellion on the fringes of the Pale, uh, the Earl of Baltinglass, which is you know is based in Ballymore Eustace, which is on the fringe between uh, Kildare and Wicklow. He goes into rebellion. He gets the clans of Wicklow, who were his traditional enemies, to go in with him. Fiat McHugh O'Byrne and stuff, and they have a victory over the English at Glenmalore. There's rebellion all across, you know, South Munster. I mean, the Butlers are obviously on the Crown side for factional reasons, but quite a lot of others do join them. The North wasn't really stirred at this time. In fact, Hugh O'Neill, who later on, you know, leads a bigger rebellion even against English rule, actually serves with the English Crown during the Desmond Rebellion. It's, it's Ireland's like that at the time. But the idea seems to be that you'll provoke a big enough rebellion across the country, and they do want aid from Spain. Now, the King of Spain, again, is at this time he's not openly at war with Elizabeth. That comes a bit later. And later on, of course, he will send a Spanish expedition. But at the time, he just facilitates a papal expedition. So the papacy sends a second expedition to Ireland, which lands again in County Kerry, it's Merrick. And the King of Spain, however, you know, he, he facilitated their departure from La Coruña and so on. So it's, it's really kind of a papal Spanish expedition. But the King of Spain says, no, nothing to do with me. I'm not at war with you yet. So there's also this hope that the Spanish will get involved, which they kind of do. But those 700 mostly Italian soldiers are besieged at Smerwick and they're all killed. They're killed after surrendering, actually. Their heads are cut off. So once again, the Second Rebellion is even more brutal than the First one. Yeah. Now, again, a very similar pattern to the First Rebellion, but the English troops, of whom there's about 6,000, again, it's not very many, really. They, they're exceptionally brutal. They, not only do they kill people and so on, but they also lay waste to the countryside because the intention is to starve the, the rebels out. And they destroy the corn, they kill the cows or they take the cows. And once you do this for like two summers in a row, you know, people are in big trouble. This is what you cause famine. And that is exactly what happens. And we have lots of accounts of this famine from people like Edmund Spencer. So Edmund Spencer is a famed writer of the Tudor period, an English writer, wrote a thing called The Fairy Queen in tribute to Elizabeth I. But in Ireland, he wrote a tract called The Present State of Ireland, A View on the Present State of Ireland which talks about this famine and how they created it by destroying all the corn and taking away all the livestock and killing the people where they found them and driving them out of the fertile areas. And Spencer says this is the only way to deal with the Irish. It's the only thing that they understand. But one of the ironies is, I mean, so Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald is killed quite quickly. Jonathan Desmond is killed in a skirmish eventually later. But one of the ironies is, is that the Earl of Fitzgerald, so by the end of the rebellion, the rebellion goes on for about three years. And there really aren't huge battles. There's lots of skirmishes like the irony is, though, that these scorched earth tactics, really extreme tactics that the English used, they're not actually able to capture Fitzgerald. And what happens at the end is Grey, who was the, the commander, is sent home because he's it's taking too long, it's expensive, he's being a bit too brutal, even for Elizabeth's tastes. He's replaced by Black Tom Butler, who started all this, the Earl of Ormond, who's a local man. He takes a much reduced number of soldiers, oh, only about 600, I believe, takes the surrender of most of the Irish lords, ceases the scorched earth stuff, and chases the Earl of Fitzgerald down to his last stronghold, which is out in North Kerry. It's outside of Tralee in the hills there. I've actually been taken to the place where the Earl of Fitzgerald had his refuge. It's a very, even though it's quite near Tralee, it's a very remote place, like it's very steep wooded hills. But what happened was, I mean, this is, lo this is what local knowledge does to you. The Earl of Formant managed to get the local clan, who were the Omoriartics, to change sides. And they killed the Earl of Desmond as he's, in, as he's resting in their territory, and they deliver his head, and that's the end of the rebellion. The Desmond dynasty is smashed, its leaders are killed, but a great swathe of Munster has been laid waste, you know, the annals of the Four Masters, which are a great source, and you can find them online, you know, translated into English. 
They say the lowing of the cow or whistle of a ploughboy was not heard from Dunquin and Kerry to Cashel and Tipperary. The whole country is, is laid waste. Spencer says a country which was vast and populous has been left a desert. You know, it's, some, it's something absolutely horrific. And they think the thinking is that about a third of the population of Munster died from one thing or another, from the sword or from, and, and well, there is also gunfire, but from violence or from mostly from famine, probably. There's so many other things you see that like, you know, if, if you were a poet or like a rhymer, as they say, and all these other, like a musician, that could be instant death as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's such a brutal period. But now the only thing I'll say, though, is that like once you do drill into it, you know, there's this constant changing of sides and, and factionalism and stuff. And the person who does bring the Earl of Desmond and he was end are actually all Irish, you know, this Black Tom Butler and the O'Moriarty spring him to bear because of their local knowledge and stuff about, and their ability to get people to change sides. And also, you know, Ormond's ability, Black Tom's ability to get lords to surrender rather than just, you know, killing everybody, which Grey doesn't seem to have appreciated. You know, I mean, there's quite a lot of the country has been in rebellion as well as Munster. There's been a rebellion in Leinster. Um, as I said, there was kind of rebellion in Dublin. Oh, it was a suspected rebellion where a lot of Dubliners were hanged, you know, for their Catholicism. Uh, it's it's a really serious thing, but the countryside is all devastated. But in English in the aftermath, see, this is all very terrible, but on the other hand, this is our chance, you know, to, to, for our good old civil reformation. Mm-hmm. So this is the first big plantation, or the Munster plantation, you know, in the aftermath of the Desmond Rebellion. And that's, as you mentioned before, it's another benefit for the Crown with plantations is you suddenly have all these out-of-work soldiers who have been destroying the countryside and burning crops and killing civilians as a good way to pay them off. Yeah, I mean, uh, although the Munster plantation really struggles to attract people, and it's not all that surprising, really, considering the, the state they left the countryside in. So the plan is that you bring in 15,000 settlers from England and from Wales, and they will be supervised by big landowners or undertakers who will be given the land. They don't get anything near 15,000 because the place is devastated. The place is also dangerous. They get seven to 800 heads of household. Now, Nicholas Canny, who has researched this, he's a great early modern historian, retired now, reckons that, you know, the seven or 800 are actually heads of families. So they represent probably about three to 4,000 people, but they don't get anywhere near the amount of settlers they have. So what happens instead is English landowners came in and they, they basically rule over mostly Irish tenants and the, the people who had fled the fighting come back from the mountains and the bogs and stuff in accessible areas and they come back and they repopulate the areas. And what they find is there's a very sparse English population, really. And the other thing is, and this is, speaks about the kind of, let's say, the lack of uniformity on medieval Ireland, is that the Earl of Desmond's estates, which have been confiscated, so that's, I should have been clear about this, the, the estates of the Earls of Desmond are confiscated. And um, most of the other lords who were involved, like McCarthy's Moor, for example, actually came in and surrendered, and their, their lands are not confiscated. Like they lose a bit of land, but most they keep most of them. The Earls of Desmond's land are not connected. They're not in like a massive block. They're eccentric. You know, they they go a bit of one county, a bit a little bit of the next county, and so on. And so they find disconnected plots where the English are. There's not that many of them. Most of the Irish tenants come back. So it's nothing like the kind of contiguous block of settlers and soldiers that they imagined it would be. And this idea of being like a native Irish tenant, um, how do things change with if your landlord or the landowner is a new English settler compared to a Gaelic Irish chieftain or an old English earl? Well, 
initially not that much. You know, you're really talking about a frontier society. And what's interesting is, you know, from the accounts that we have, some of these settlers come in and typically they're given, you know, the role of magistrate and so on. So they have the power of life and death over people. Some of them are very brutal. But some of them, interestingly, there's a guy called William Herbert, who is a Welshman, and he's, his estates were on the marches between England and Wales. So he, he's very sensitive to the idea of the, you know, different cultures and different languages. And he learns Irish. He preaches, because he's also a religious figure. He preaches to the Irish in, in Irish. And he says he's making great progress. But the, the interesting thing about it is a lot of the under, undertakers hated him. They said, this guy, Herbert, is a soft Welshman. He yeah. doesn't understand that the only thing the Irish understand is severity. You know, and he stopped prosecuting them. And look, look, they're still speaking Irish. They're still in the old ways and so on. You know, the, what you need is the iron fist, you know. But to be honest with you, though, you still have kind of a hybrid society. I mean, mostly what you have is the English trying to fit into Gaelic society at this period. But there's also a lot of legal wrangles. So, like, yes, the, the rebels' land is confiscated, which is mostly the Earls of Desmond and, and some others. But, you know, in the case of the McCarthy's Moor, who I happened to study back in the days of my MA, some land is bought by a family called the Browns, and if some some of their titles are questioned. You know, people look over to the small print of their deal with Henry VIII back in the fifteen forties, and they try to take other land off them. But the McCarthy's pretty much hold their own, you know, up until until the next big war in Ireland, which we might get onto in a future podcast. From an English point of view, the Munster Plantation is is not really a great success here. You have some more English settlers. You have some more areas controlled by state force, but. Really, most of it is still held by, by native landlords, if you like. And in terms of cultivation and stuff, the English talk about, of course, yeah, we brought in English methods of cultivation or something that much superior to the Irish and so on. How much of this could have gone on in this devastated landscape? I, I, I do wonder about. Now, one thing we might touch on briefly is the role of women during the rebellions. Yeah, so women do not hold lordships in Gaelic Ireland. So everyone knows the story of Grania Will, but she's an outlier. That, that's very unusual. In Gaelic and Old English Ireland, so women are typically the wives of the lords. And so one of the interesting wrinkles towards the end of the Desmond Rebellion is that the wife of the Earl of Desmond actually comes in and surrenders before he does. So he's still hiding out in the, the hills of North Kerry she comes in and surrenders, and as a result, she gets to hang on to some of the family lands, actually. She herself was a McCarthy by birth, you know, this, this is typical of intermarriage. But you do find that women, despite the fact that their legal status is inferior, now aristocratic women I'm talking about, do play a role. So in the aftermath, for example, of the Desmond Rebellions, the McCarthy Moore family is kind of, they're not confiscated, but they're discredited by having been involved. The McCarthy Rick family try to marry into their family well they do marry in and a guy called Florence McCarthy who's the man I wrote my MA on or Fionnan McCarthy because his real name but Florence is what the English called him married the daughter of McCarthy Moore and he thinks he's going to inherit the McCarthy Moore title now we may get into this in a future podcast but it's very interesting her career her name is Ellen but she fights tooth and nail so that Florence won't get the inheritance and she will and to the extent that in the next round of wars the nine years war she underhandedly I would say sides with the English and she manages to inherit all the lands rather than rather than Florence who was sent off to the Tower of London but you do find this manoeuvring by aristocratic women to maintain their position and often they're very independent minded and they often have it very to the forefront in their mind that they're not actually of the same line as their husband and they often try to look out for their original family's line 
rather than their married families, which is interesting. Yes, very interesting indeed. Why do you think it's important to study or read up about this period, the late 16th century in Ireland? Why do you think it's, it's important to get an understanding of how Ireland became the way it was? A number of things. I mean, first of all, like you can't, we, we talk about Ireland being conquered and colonised and so on, which it was, but it's a much more complicated process than people imagine, I think. Um, Irish society was not some idyllic, you know, democratic. Uh, some people even, James Connolly, for example, wrote that it was the Gaelic Irish were, were, you know, natural communists or something like that. And that's not the case, you know, it wasn't anything like that. There also, it wasn't very straightforward, people's allegiances, they could shift all the time. But it's important that people understand where it came from the complexity of, of, of Irish society going, going back to that time. But also the subsequent centuries. So the 17th century is the first one, I think, where kind of some kind of modern Irish identity is born. It's really born in the religious and ethnic, I suppose, wars of that century. But that's not possible without what happened in the Tudor conquest. And if you think about also like the counterfactuals, as historians say, so let's say the Tudor conquest had not happened or had not succeeded, you know, if, it, if nothing like that had ever happened, you would have been looking at the template of medieval Irish society, which is highly hierarchical, but also highly fragmented into different lordships, highly militarised, but also almost entirely Irish-speaking, uh, following Breton laws and so on. That would have continued much longer. And that's, you know, the consequences of that would have been very unpredictable. And this is one of the things that I always find so frustrating as an Irish person is the idea of divide and conquer. You're like, if you all would have come together against the crown, there might have been some chance of success. But when the crown can always pick people off and people can always be convinced to switch sides for a material benefit, it's it's very little chance that these rebellions will succeed. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about that is, so in one way, you know, I, obviously everybody thinks that when they look at this period of Irish history, and in one way, that's an anachronism, again, as historians say, so it's something, it's an idea from one time translated mm. to another time. But having said that, the annals of the Four Masters at the end of this period, at the end of the Nine Years' War, which is much more, a much more proto-nationalist, whatever, rebellion than the Desmond Rebellions would say, is had the Irish not been divided, then nothing would have conquered them. So having said that, though, and maybe I can close on this, the Annals of the Four Masters, which is compiled in the early 17th century by uh, Catholic clerics, actually, but who were also Gaelic scholars. What they write about the Desmond Rebellions is not all that sympathetic, interestingly enough. They conclude that it was no wonder that God exterminated the Geraldines or the Desmonds for their disloyalty to the sovereign. It's, it's hard to believe, really. But the thing is about that is they considered that the Desmonds had been put there by the English crown in the first place. They rebelled against their sovereign, therefore they served what they got, which yeah. is interesting. And it's totally different from their attitude to Gaelic Irish rebels against the crown, who we might talk about maybe in future episodes. Yeah. So there you go. It's a very complicated period, but it really does help you understand future Irish history if we delve deeper into these earlier centuries so hopefully now after we've spent so much time on the revolutionary period because obviously of the decade of centenaries we'll get a chance to explore areas of Irish history that we haven't looked at too much in the past so just to say again you can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie you can follow us on twitter at irishhistorypod 
or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. Now, as I said earlier, John has set up a Patreon for the Irish History Show and the Irish Story website. And if you would consider supporting the show on Patreon, we'd really appreciate it. And the link is in the show notes. And again, we have to say thank you to our friends at Radio.ie, who you should check out for all your radio archiving solutions. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening to the show. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.